Hey everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J, and today's guest is Terry Crane, author of the book NEMS and the Business of Selling Beatles Merchandise in the U.S. from 1964 to 1966. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So apparently the Beatles were not just a musical and cultural phenomenon, but as your book documents, they're also a merchandising phenomenon as well. Yes, when the band first hit February of 64, they had all these businessmen just lining up on the morning after the Ed Sullivan show, wanting to make things. They had ideas. They were lined up outside the hotel room of the management company going, you know, we want to make some dolls. We want to make some games. We want to make all this kind of stuff. We have money in our pockets to give to you. Uh, what do we have to do to do that? And it was, a, it was just an interesting time is what happens with that. They could take this idea of marketing and a tie-in to a rock and roll band or something like that and try to make some additional kind of money off of it and trying to sell all the items with their pictures on it and their names on it to see how well they could do. And it was that immediate, like immediately following the Ed Sullivan appearance? The next morning, the big day in music history is February 9th at 7 o'clock Central when the Beatles played Ed Sullivan. Well, I am, am a firm believer in that one of the next biggest things was the next morning when the business people who drove in from New York, who flew in from L.A., uh, were lined up on their uh, hotel rooms beating on the doors. And as they were, as the management group talked about it, they were queuing outside the hotel rooms with just ideas and, and money ready to start doing something like this. Now, now, this did go on over the next few days, the next few weeks, and even the next few months. But that's what started it was that next morning after Ed Sullivan trying to pitch their ideas of what they could do for the Beatles and what they could make in their likeness to try to sell to the American public. So apparently it wasn't just the teenage girls screaming and crying and waving their hands. It was the business people well, it might have been it might have been the business people watching their teenage daughters doing all that, where the the light bulbs start going on with the ideas of we got to get in on this and we got to get in quick. But there was no precedence, there was no blueprint. Nobody knew how long a rock and roll band that was this hot would last. So we we got to strike quickly and see what happens here. Yeah, that's true because a lot of people really thought that was going to last a month or a, a very short period of time. Exactly. And you have a lot of people that talk about the original deal that was done for some of this uh, merchandise where Brian Epstein and the Beatles only got 10%. The other guys running the thing got 90%. Hindsight makes everybody brilliant with 2020 vision. Mm -hmm. So everybody now can say, oh, that was the worst deal in the world. And it probably was, but no one was in that moment. No one was there when that happened. Right. There was nothing that had ever happened before like that. You know, so when the Beatles and Brian Epstein especially says, oh, I'll take 10% of that, he's probably going, I'm going to get 10% and I don't have to do a thing. We're just here giving you a picture of us or giving you a signature of the Beatles, you know, and I'm just going to sit back and make 10% of that. This is wonderful. Right. So this basically wrote the book on what to do and the experiences to do and what you learn and what you don't learn from it. So, but at that time, I don't know if anybody could blame Brian Epstein for, for the what he got out out of the deal because he had no idea and nobody had any idea that you and I 55 years later would be talking about this on a podcast right. about the Beatles and, and their, their impact that they still have now. Yeah. And so Brian Epstein, he was the point person, you know, the NEMS in your book title stood for the North End Music Stores, which I believe were in Britain, right? And family owned or something like that. 
Correct. Yeah, he that, his dad owned it, and uh, he worked at one of the stores. He was the record guy in one of the stores, and when he was managing the Beatles, they were starting to get big. I know I'm going to need a company to manage them because they're going to be big, so let's see what I can think of. Oh, I'll just take the name of the store that I work at and turn that into a, a management company. So that's where he got the name for that. And immediately following that first rush of Beatlemania, as you mentioned, and it ran your book anyway from 64 to 66 and covers roughly 150 officially licensed items. In your book, you alphabetize all the different gear. And we're talking games and dolls and toys and wigs and jewelry and school supplies and bubble bath. Where did this stuff come from? all from the, the ideas of the business people at that time. You know, they started out with these ideas. They would pitch to the NIMS. They'd say, well, we're going to make quality stuff. You know, that lasted for a little while. But as you see in the book, when you get to some of this stuff, I'm not sure quality was the best way to describe it. The reason I like it so much, there's about 150 items, and they're the coolest thing on the planet. You know, they, they might have been not been the best quality. It might not have been the, the best uh, made stuff and all that. But when you look back on it now, how cool and how cheesy and <laughs> just how, how neat that some of this stuff is now that they put on the shelves of Woolworths and the drugstores and Ben Franklin and all this stuff that just drove the general public nuts trying to collect all this and have a good time putting all this together. And you talk about one extreme to the other. There is all kind of stuff out there on this list that they would hope that maybe this one item is the one that's going to make my company right. some extra money. Well, it certainly was a new frontier. I mean, I can't remember prior to the Beatles any kind of merch in the music business. The merchandising in the U.S. up to that point, you had the Wizard of Oz. Disney always had some stuff, the Superman and the Batman stuff. Uh, you ran into, for example, the Flintstones. They made the Fruity Pebbles cereal real early 60s. So, But you really didn't have a mass merchandising tie-in with anything like that before this happened. Nowadays, you can't go to uh, the Avengers movie without going into Walmart and buying a million T-shirts, going into McDonald's and finding Avengers everywhere. Everything you see is there's ties in now to movies and groups and stuff like that. Well, none of that really existed before the Beatles. So if mom and dads want to blame Fat Four for a little bit of that also. Well, and it's funny because I had to chuckle uh, when you mentioned some of the previous things that tied in, you know, the Flintstones and Disney and the Wizard of Oz. And those were all, you know, artistic and cultural cultural shifts and, and just huge moments. Who would have thought, you know, these young boys from Liverpool would be part of it? Oh, exactly. And I, and I think they are the ones, whether they meant to or not, and the businessmen helped out a ton, they are the ones that made a shift in the mass merchandising and, and the way the U.S. looks at that kind of thing, because it wasn't there before. The next thing you know, over the next six months with the Beatles and all that, you know, you're buying Beatles birthday cards, you're buying cufflinks, you're buying aprons, you're buying all kinds of things, and which would have never even been thought of uh, even just a few months before. One of the things I noticed in your book, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I have to admit, seeing the black mock turtleneck sweaters that the band wore on the cover of Meet the Beatles was one of the first items, correct? 
Uh, yeah, over in the UK, they start marketing different things over there, and the, and they put these patches on the black sweaters. Well, the the company that were handling the sweaters, they weren't really selling that well. So the company went to Brian Epstein. They said, you know what, the sweaters are not doing the best. Can we at least take the patches off the sweaters and try to sell the patches by themselves? Well, they did that, and the patches are the ones that ended up on the back of the Rice Krispies box over in the UK. Advertising for the by the Beatles patches and all that. Well, that's because they decided to take them off the sweaters uh, to see if they could see if they could sell them better that way. Kind of a two for one deal. And did it work? They started selling more patches than they did sweaters. So there. Well, you know, I'm guessing there's a price point in there too, because the patch probably you know the kid at the table in the Rice Krispies says I got to have that as opposed to you know the turtleneck sweater. Exactly. Yeah, there there is a price point. So, but at least with the lower price point, they're getting their names out there. They're getting the patches out there. The patches got the guitar on it, and John Paul George's ring on it. So now they're starting to get the name brand out to the public. Like you mentioned, uh, the Rice Krispie cereal box in the UK was that just in the UK, or did that come to the US as well? I believe that was just the UK because when you see that patch on there. That's really the uh, the UK version of that is what it is, and you know that there's that famous tie into that Rice Krispies box where if you ever listen to the old uh, Rice Krispies uh, television commercial over in the UK when they would always go Good morning, Good morning and oh. the, on the UK. Well, they they go Oh, that's where John got his idea for the Good morning, Good morning song on uh, Sergeant Pepper. So it's just an interesting. All these things that tie in together like that is just is just what makes stuff like this really cool. That's a very cool story. And uh, I would guess Rice Krispies caught a lot of eyeballs. So in your book, do you have a favorite item or, or, or maybe the most unusual thing that you found? I like them all. I really do. There was one, I was shooting a photograph of the Beatles headphones, and I love the headphones. They look really good. Well, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a Beatles handkerchief. It was laying on this guy's couch, and I go, oh my gosh, you got the handkerchief too. Well, the collector said, well, yeah, but that's just kind of a blah item. I like the headphones better. And I understood that from his collector's set, it, it, it looks so much better and all this. And I said, yeah, but from my point of view, the handkerchief is just as cool as the headphones, because it's one of the 150 items. I I think one of the weirdest things out there is the thing called the grow hair on the Beatles. You'd send off and you'd get this piece of cardboard in the mail. And this piece of cardboard it had little dots on it where you could tear them off. And there was so it ended up being four slivers of cardboard. And they had a, a headshot of each beetle on each cardboard. And what you did was you set this cardboard in water. And over the next few days, what you realized is on the head of each beetle, they had chia seeds. <laughs> so what happened was this hair started growing on the beetle's head. It's got this great line in there watch them grow live hair in your room and yes even you can give the Beatles a haircut and the other thing that I like a lot is the skateboard well if you look in there about the skateboard this was a, a an item where they actually designed they made the press release for the skateboard the skateboard was made in uh, Norfolk Virginia by the surf skater company they took out an ad in a trade magazine a, a toy trade magazine called Playthings magazine in December of 64 where they advertised this it had all this stuff but to this date I don't know of anyone that has one I have I've 
I've asked collectors. I've put messages out on Facebook and everywhere I could find, but no one seems to have one. So I don't know if it ever hit the market. There must have been something that happened right in there that I don't know if the company decided, well, you know what? We really don't think this is going to go anywhere. So they pulled them all or whatever it is. But but it's just an interesting item. It was an item. It was the license by NIMS. I got the pictures of it right there in the magazines. I've got the uh, Surf Skater Company telephone listing from 1965. But I can't find anybody that actually has ever had it or actually rode on the skateboard. <laughs> so, so if that's their worst seller, or at least one that's lost to time, do you have any idea what was the more most popular or biggest selling item? The one that I know collectors want the most is the record player. They only made 5,000 of these uh, Beatle record players. These record players were on sale for, I think it was $29.95, I think is what it was. So actually, when you went down the aisle of Woolworths and you saw this record player and it was $29.95, that was a lot of money back in 64 and 65 to buy for something. So not only did they not make very many of them, and because they didn't make very many of them. They were a high dollar ticket item. So everyone didn't buy one of these. So they're rare in that respect also. And now if you ask most any collectors, what one thing do they really wish they had? It's always the Beatles record player. Well, one of the many reasons uh, folks should buy your book is I believe there is a black and white photograph in there of a bin in a Woolworths with a little girl next to it with all these Beatles gear and items on it. And it's just such a trip back in time. I think that one of the things that drew me to this and the, the thing to do is like, let's take a walk down Woolworths aisles. Let's see what we can find. And if you were lucky enough to be in a in a market that had all of the Beatles stuff, here's the 100, 150 items that are sitting in front of you. And if you had any thought about what to do in the future, you'd put every one of these things in your shopping cart and just <laughs> ring them out. Exactly. Um, so, so the band is aware of all this going on, correct, at this time? You yeah. Know, they're, yes, they're aware. They're not, they're not too aware yet of how much money they're making or not making, but they are aware that this stuff is going on in the UK and in the US. Yes. And, and you mentioned earlier that you know towards the end maybe some of the quality kind of fell off. Did the band have any creative control for their likeness or their brand, or was that all in Epstein's hands? I, it was mostly. It was all in Epstein's hand. I talked to. Uh, Tony Bramwell one day, their former Apple CEO and a great friend of the Beatles. And I asked him about that. And he said there was stuff coming in the mail every day with from business people that had ideas. We want to do this and want to do this. So every now and then they might say, well, we don't think we should make that or that. But usually they left that up to the people in the higher management companies. And, and they try to do some editing of items and all that. But especially when the, some of the things were being made that weren't licensed or knockoff items and all that, it, it became a pain. And I know that NIMS themselves, they actually started suing different companies in the mid-60s about, well, that's not a licensed wig or that's not a licensed shirt or that's not one that we signed off on so they would go after them legally through the court system now they probably could have gone after a lot more than they did but they did start trying to quell that a little bit by uh going through the courts would you know if they flatly refused to give their blessing to anything because of you know one of the things when you look at all these pictures there's a pretty wild difference about each beetle face or the caricature and some of them are quite good and some of them are are kind of funny you know laughable or, and some of them are bad <laughs> did they reject anything 
I don't know at this moment if they just flat said no on anything. I do know that with the lawsuits, that's where they start drawing the line. I'll use the example. A Remco company made a doll. In fact, that's one of the most popular things you see in that time is the little black Remco dolls. Remco, they just knew somebody was going to make another doll. And they were the only officially licensed entity to make a doll. So even in their ads, they would go, uh, we are the only licensed company to make the doll. And they would warn other companies, don't you dare make one. Well, of course, that lasted about a month. And uh, another company started making a doll. And Remco sued them, and uh, they won. But, you know, the other company would go, well, it's not really the Beatles. Um, they'd, they'd hold them side by side, and they'd go, well, they look awful like, yeah, but it's not really the Beatles. Well, the judge didn't believe that. So, But that's what had to happen. NIMS had to sue. Other companies had to sue. That's how they tried to even make it at least some kind of uh, legitimate business all going on there. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're talking to Terry Crane, the author of NEMS and the Business of Selling Beatles Merchandise in the U.S., 1964 to 1966. It is incredible, and I, you have to give Brian Epstein, the manager of the Beatles, a ton of credit for his vision. There's a reprint in your book of a 1965 New York Times article that puts that year's projected take of over $50 million. That's insane. Yeah, and it got way higher than that. They f they figured that that's right around the time where the teenagers had their uh, had their extra money, and they would go out and they'd buy all this stuff. And a lot of it was the two dollar or three dollar item, or even the ninety nine cent item like that. So they would just buy this stuff up all over the place, and it it just started adding up and adding up. And that's another reason when they talk about Brian Epstein and the Beatles not making very much money. Well, when you start throwing around quotes like that and you start adding up of what's going to be uh, the Beatles cut and all that and what's going to not be the Beatles cut and all that it becomes huge. Now, I will say after about six or seven months, once the, we got to the mid and the end of 1964, uh, Brian Epstein knew 
that he made a, a critical mistake with the 90-10 split because even that, now he had hindsight and he was smarter than he was. And they did renegotiate that where it got closer to a 50-50 split. But by that time, the, the damage was done. You already had all the dolls that were getting bought and all the sweatshirts were getting bought and all the, all the games and everything were all getting bought up. So they, they did miss out. The mop top horse was out of the yeah. barn. There's also there's a great Ringo quote in your book that says, anytime you spell beetle with an A in it, we get some money. Is that true? Well, that's back then when you signed the licensing agreement with them. That's exactly what they talked about. Now, the side is they didn't get go after you uh, in the legal court system and all that. And you'd get... All these other knockoffs were, they, they wouldn't spell Beatles with an A. They'd go B-E-E-T-L-E-S. There was a, another record player out that was not licensed. I think it was from the uh, Lionel Company. And there was only three Beatles instead of four on there. Well, they were going to try to get that by and all that. But the, they knew that wasn't going to work, so they pulled that off the shelves quick. Because they, they didn't want to be in the legal system anyway. But, but yeah, I think that was pretty much, at that time, if you had the license thing and, they, and the watchdog was watching you, then the, the lads were getting some money. Maybe not as much as they should have, but they were getting some. So late in 64, into the early 65, the Beatle business, as you call it, sours. What killed this cash cow? Was it the competition, the, the unlicensed product? I think a little bit of everything, you know, you start getting into where they start getting mad at each other. For example, the company in the United States that was the licensing company for Beatles items was called Celltabe. That was a offshoot of NIMS. NIMS said, we're going to create this whole new company just to take care of Beatles U.S. items. What they did was they spelled the word Beatles backwards, and they, so it became Celltabe or Celltab. Within a year, the people within cell tape were all mad at each other, uh, and and they're suing each other. They're saying, well, this guy's not paying us like we should. The royalties aren't coming on time. NIMS got mad at cell tape and said, well, you're not paying us enough money. We're going to renegotiate. You're late on your payment. You're not licensing as much as you should. We're going to, NIMS said, we're going to license our own and bypass cell tape. Well, cell tape had a contract to do that. And they said, no, you can't do that. So everybody starts suing each other. It turns into a mess is what happens in businesses like that. And then you get into, I think, 66, when the Beatles decide they're not going to tour anymore. A lot of this stuff you could sell at the Beatles concerts. The megaphones, the buttons, and all this kind of stuff you're selling at the Beatles concerts and all that. That was just another piece of everything that just started going sour a little bit that was making this the original cool items. Basically, they started cooling off a little bit. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that, too, because, I mean, they would go on, what, another five years, four years to 70? Is that about when they broke up? Yes, exactly. They had, you know, the whole Sgt. Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour and the Yellow Submarine. That stuff just seems so ripe for the merch. Oh, exactly. Now, my book, in my mind, has a nice natural break. So my book stops about 1966. The next wave is all the Yellow Submarine stuff. The Yellow Submarine items in 67 and all that, they're phenomenal. They're a whole nother group, a whole nother range. And for somebody, not really me, that's a whole nother book right there is all the yellow submarine items that came out still in the 60s, still with the the Beatles' blessing and all that kind of stuff. 
I think when that stuff starts coming out, that kind of draws the very defining line between the early stuff that was just the, the neatest stuff in the world, and now the next phase, the yellow submarine stuff starts coming in. For me, it worked out perfectly for my advantage as well. This is where we're going to draw a line. And, you know, it come back, too, because I know probably in the mid-'80s, I picked up a set of these Beetle dolls that are probably like three feet high, the four of them, and there was a Sgt. Pepper's foursome, and then there was the Mop Top foursome. And, of course, I, I went for the Sgt. Pepper one, but, you know, I'm wondering, I'm guessing that was probably Apple or somebody else that was behind that. Correct. Apple Apple comes out now with waves of things in the in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. They they go through their own. You ha, you hear people say, well, that wasn't one of the original items, but then you realize, well, yeah, but that was in the 1970 right. wave, which is still 40 right. years ago. Right. <laughs> so it's still it's still old and it's still cool. A lot of the people they like the original first wave, which is exactly what the book is about. The original first wave, and you can see it too. There's just something about it that is clearly from that time period. I've got on my desk the Ringo Soaky Doll Bubble Bath. They only made Ringo and Paul because at that time, Colgate Palm Olive, who was the company that made the Beatles Bubble Bath, and found out that the two most popular Beatles in the United States in 1964 was Paul and Ringo. So we said, well, that's who we're going to make. We're going to kind of hold off on John and George. So John and George never got their Soaky Doll made. <laughs> uh, pour the bubble bath in and just have a wonderful time. As long as you save the packaging, you're probably still all right, you know. I mean, everybody used the soap, but if you save the packaging, you're good. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to ask you about, I find this whole conversation presages this whole explosion of merch in today's music industry. And it's not really secondary, but it seems that the model now is that the merch is supported by the music rather than music supported by the merch. That is the profit machine for the artist, right? They have figured that out, I believe, over the years. And if the Brian Epstein helped write that so that he could help out inexperienced people over the years and bands over the years, he helped tell them what to do and what not to do. And apparently now the, the merchandise, everything surrounding the band now, no matter what you can do and what you can get out there and all that, just helps the cause even more. This started all that was, hey, let's let's try another wave of publicizing our band by making these goofy little things to see if they can be sold. And now it's an industry standard. Yeah, and it's funny, too, because I think that it maybe it's missed the point a little bit. You know, you had talked about the things that were a dollar or two and uh, Woolworths and those kinds of things. And now today you've got $450 Kanye West Jack. Um, I was doing some research, and uh, the tribe called Quest had a pop-up store where they sold merch, and then they were laughing about it because bags that they gave you the merch in to take home from the concert were selling online for like $40 a bag. Everybody has that figured out now. So you buy your $200 or your $300 ticket to get into the show. Well, then once you get in, you realize you still have to have your credit card because you're going to want to buy something while you're in there. And isn't it funny that the stuff that you buy the next day, you can find out on eBay. And everybody knows that's how it got there. And uh, the public would be buying it or they really wouldn't be putting it out there in the first place. So in closing, your book is highly researched and it's fascinating. What did you learn in all that research that you could share with bands or tastemakers about merch today or any advice as to what to do or even perhaps more prophetically what not to do? Because the Beatles run was over quickly. Granted, they made a lot of money, but it was a short run. 
So I think if you utilize this stuff correctly and maybe you learn from some of the things that the Beatles did right and the Beatles did wrong and their management company did wrong on that, you know, you can surely take that and go, well, we can learn from this. And these guys set the bar so high for so many other things. Let's research their, re- their merchandising and all that to see what they did, to see what we can do learning from this, uh, what to do and what not to do. The whole subject of this is just pretty fascinating. I wanted to do a book like like this where it's not really a price guide. There's price guides out there all over for this merchandise that are wonderful, but I just wanted to do one book that wasn't really a price guide. I could look at it though and say, okay, here's a Beetle doll. Here's the company that made it. Here's where the company was located. Here was the president of, of the company. Here was the guys that designed that this doll and all that. That's what fascinated me so much was the history of these items, not what they were worth, but who in the world thought of these things and what company and are these companies still around? And that was the approach I took for this book. Well, it is a fascinating book. It's a beautiful book, too. It's loads of photographs of all this stuff, which is wonderful and kitschy and unique and absolutely a step back in time. So I would encourage everyone to go out and pick it up. It's called NEMS and the Business of Selling Beatles Merchandise in the U.S., 1964 to 1966. So what's next for you? Is there another book in your future? Well, right now, I'm just having a lot of fun with this. And what I've realized is I can't stop. You know, even though there's 150 items and I am I keep researching those items even deeper and deeper. And one of the things is the, the Beatles rings. Who made that ring and who made that one and where did you get that one? So I don't, a curse or what it is, but I find that I just can't stop going after more and more of the cool information about these items. Well, if you ever get a chance to come up out of that deep, dark hole that you're in, <laughs> You can come back and we'd love to have you on. Thanks, Terry. Thanks so much for having me today. I had a wonderful time. I'd like to thank our guest, Terry Crane. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. We'd appreciate it, and so would Terry. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer extraordinaire, Steve Folsom, who can be found at www.fullsound.com. Finally, a big shout-out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 